Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. Psychologist Raja Selvan discusses his new book, The Practice of Embodying Emotions, a guide for improving cognitive, emotional, and behavioral outcomes. Raja is the creator of Integral Somatic Psychology, or ISP, an effective somatic therapy that encourages optimal mental health by fully embodying emotions. Raja and I explore how clinicians can facilitate patient resolution of difficult emotions by allowing increased recognition of emotion and then expanding that emotion to more of the body. Rather than cognitively down-regulating emotions, this somatic approach of expanding emotion increases affect tolerance and resolves systemic distress. ISP is a great complementary modality for all talk therapy methods. It was an honor to dialogue with Raja about ISP and discuss our mutual interest in non-dual philosophies. Raja Selvan, we're going to have a conversation not just about integral somatic psychology, which is your methodology for working somatically in the body with issues that lots of clinicians only use mind for, but also you have a book out called The Practice of Embodying Emotions, A Guide for Improving Cognitive, Emotional, and Behavioral Outcomes, which we're going to talk a lot about today. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Lisa, for the opportunity. I know that you have a very sophisticated audience. I will try to not hold back and get into as many details of the book as possible and the method as possible. To begin with, let me talk about what this book is about and what it is not about. The practice of embodying emotions is the core clinical strategy in a larger approach to working with the psyche I have called integral somatic psychology. Today, I'm going to talk more about the practice of embodying emotions, which again is a core clinical strategy. This is not a competitive clinical modality. It is a complementary modality that I hope as many clinicians and as many therapy modalities as possible will adopt to improve cognitive, emotional, and behavioral outcomes. Not only those, but also physical and energetic outcomes and relational and spiritual mindfulness outcomes. The book is written in such a way that it's not only for therapists, but it's also for the discerning public who are interested in improving their emotional regulation and through that, improving their lives, improving their thinking, and so on. What is the idea of embodying emotion? That needs to be clarified. Because embodiment means so many things to so many people. For example, if people sense their body, cold here, hot there, tingling here, they say that they're embodied. Some people say, well, if I can sense energy flow in my body, they're embodied. If they can sense emotion in their body, they're embodied. And then embodied cognition, they talk about, is the body available and open for cognitive operations that they actually now depend on the body as well, yeah? So there are many, many different levels of embodiment. On the spiritual circles, it's about embodying the whole universe as my own body. The absolute level of pure consciousness on on which the entire universe unfolds 
owning that is the ultimate embodiment. So there are different levels of embodiment. So I need to define this very precisely. Embodying an emotion is to expand the conscious experience of the emotion, let us say fear or grief or happiness, to as much of the body and brain physiology as possible. And body and brain are one and the same. You know, brain is part of the body. That's what I call embodying an emotion. Having defined that, immediately the question arises, why on earth would anyone want to do that? <laughs> I'm afraid of dying, someone says. I've always been afraid of dying all my life, and I cannot get rid of it. You know, even if I try to avoid it, it makes me anxious, and I try to get rid of it. It's still causing havoc in my chest. Why on earth would I want to expand it to the rest of my body, to my belly, to my legs, to my arm, to my brain? That's a reasonable question. And answer is, there are two benefits that this can bring about. It actually makes the emotion more tolerable. When something becomes more tolerable, the brain can process it more rationally. What it can do in the situation, how does it think about it, really brings about. That's one benefit. Emotion gets more regulated. I can bear it. It does not cause havoc cognitively, emotionally, behaviorally. And the second benefit, when I do that, the body becomes more open. We know that from body psychotherapy, that when we have difficult emotions, we defend against it through psychological defenses, but also through physiological defenses. Mainstream psychology does not know as much about the physiological defenses as much as body psychotherapy systems do. It turns out that I shut my body down through defenses like constriction, reduction of energy in the body, et cetera, not to feel that emotion as much. When I shut it down, the body becomes not available, not just for emotional experience and regulation of it, but it also becomes less available for cognition and behavior. Because in the last 20 years, science has established more and more clearly that even abstract thought depends on the availability of the body. So cognition improves, even from a philosophical scientific view, not just from the brain having more time to process a tolerable emotion to come up with better thoughts and behaviors about it. Now, the benefits go further. When I'm able to regulate an emotion, it's like I'm sitting on a horse that's not bouncing all over the place. When that happens, my ability to be, become mindful, mindfulness practices are very popular now, good reason in mainstream psychology. When I can tolerate my experience in the body, my ability to become a witness to my experience, which is what mindfulness is, improves. And beyond that, those of you who are on the path of enlightenment, in Buddhism or Hinduism or Sufism or Kabbalah, the ultimate practice, mindfulness practice, is to separate the experience into a sense of self and pure witness. That also becomes more possible. So even the path of enlightenment gets easier. No? People often ask, well, how did I get on this train of the practice of embodying emotions? Part of the reason is spiritual. On the spiritual practice that I have at Veta Vedanta or on the psychological practice at value, Jungian psychology, the ability to tolerate opposites is extremely important. And where do we have difficulty tolerating difficult experiences or too thrilling an experience in the body? That's where we develop symptoms. Because of my many traumas in my childhood, I lost my body. I lost my access to emotions. So they became also a focus. So I was working on emotions in the body on the one hand, working on Jungian psychology, individuation, and enlightenment at Dvaita Vedanta on the other hand. So some of them came together right from the beginning. I've been very interested in developing a greater capacity of emotion. It can be done in many ways, but it makes sense for me to personally do it through my body. And I realize it's also a benefit to other people. Robert Stolarov, one of my teachers, has always said, 
that the only gift we can give cl our clients is affect tolerance. And, and I once remember asking him, how do you do that with a baby? How do you do that with a child when it's all in the body? His idea is to interpret it and make meaning and through the meaning, regulate the emotion, which is absolutely valuable thing to do. But what if it's not available? And what if it doesn't work? And the answer is the practice of embodying emotions, you know, to use the body to do that. The idea of embodying emotion is quite confused, I think, these days, partly because what happened to mindfulness about 10 years ago has suddenly happened to somatic psychotherapy and somatic modalities. There's so many people who are out there saying they're a somatic therapist and they have no idea what they're doing. There's something about ISP that I find extremely intriguing because my experience with many of my patients is, and this is, I think, true for many people in the modern world, it's not just that emotion is intolerable. It's, I hear, I don't feel them, even if I ask about what emotion they might be having, this is very early on the treatment, before they have any skills, maybe they'll mention four or five. That's all the emotions they know. And overall, the experience that they have is aversion to emotion, not emotion itself. And so I'm wondering whether or not when you very quickly in the book go right to, there is an experience of emotion you're having, the point is to expand it to as much of the body as possible. The first thing I think is, wow, that sounds very top-down. That sounds like a person is using their mind to move emotion through the body. And I know that's not what ISP is. So I'd like you to address that confusion first. How does one expand emotion in a bottom-up way, not a top-down way? There are so many questions in the great question that you just asked, right? Aversion to unpleasant emotion is universal. Aversion to pleasant emotion, like sexuality, a love, uh, is there only because there are unpleasant emotional consequences to having them. Freud named it. He called it the pleasure principle. We, mm -hmm. Our brain is programmed to avoid unpleasant experiences because they are, by definition, states of stress and dysregulation opposed to survival and health. Therefore, right. it's programmed to avoid that. And it has so many defenses that it is there in place from the womb so that the unpleasant emotional experiences are not too much. You know, people die of grief. Why wouldn't a baby die of shock in the womb? Yeah, emotional shock. That aversion, you and me and 7 billion other people and counting are experienced on a daily basis. I do it all the time. Giving it agency by saying, I am resisting because you're not. Your brain is resisting. That's a better way to look at it. So explaining that to people, that's one thing. And the second thing is, I believe in educating clients why it is necessary for people to go through unpleasant experiences that they've gone through, but they've not necessarily processed. Unfortunately, the field is moving in the other direction. <laughs> the field is moving toward something to get rid of the emotion. In fact, it's not uncommon for people to believe that emotion is an evolutionary tale that just hasn't dropped off. Damasio put that to rest in his 1994 book, Descartes' Error, in which he established on the basis of research of people with brain damage. Even in those circumstances, people with emotion do better 
they're better regulated socially, their thinking is better regulated, their emotions are better regulated than people who do not have emotion, people whose brain areas that have to do with emotion are damaged. So emotion is necessary for rationality, not the other way around. What about all these conspiracy theories and Twitter attacks you see? People are highly emotional. In fact, they say, I hate you. I hope you will die. And there are crimes of passion. Lovers who kill their own lovers because they can't tolerate losing them. Yes, emotion is important for thinking, all aspects of cognition. Emotion can also result in dysregulated cognition behavior. And that's why the practice by regulating the emotion, by making it more tolerable, will make the emotion more rational. One of the reasons why clients cannot get to emotions, now you, all say, uh, you talk about clients who have access to four or five emotions. You're in the realm of plenty. <laughs> People who tell me that my clients have no emotions. And they also say, my clients can't sense their body. On closer inspection, it turns out the understanding of the range of emotions that therapists are bringing to their clients I used to, because that's what I learned in graduate school, you know, on my doctoral program, that there is a list of primary emotions and all of the emotional experiences, a combination of those happiness, sadness, fear, anger, surprise, guilt, what Charles Darwin came up with. We have expanded over time in a tradition of research on emotion. Nowhere do you find emotions that are more commonplace. I call them sensory motor emotions. For example, when a client comes to me and the client says, I'm feeling really bad about the situation. That's the meta communication of all encounters with a new client, right? I feel bad, help me to feel better. They're making an emotional statement. The basic dimension of all unpleasant experiences that I feel bad or awful, terrible, where? In my body. If it were only in my brain, I wouldn't, couldn't care less. It's in my body. I suffer, really. When somebody says, I feel so bad about what just happened, then the therapist says, tell me what you feel. Missing the fact that the client has already made an emotional statement. For example, I feel intolerable emptiness when I come home and my wife is not here. On a day that I'm feeling down, especially because my work didn't go well. That intolerable emptiness is a legitimate emotion. Do I feel sad about it? If you asked me, I would say, yeah, I do feel sad about it now that you ask me. What is more intolerable, the sadness or the emptiness? It's the emptiness that drives me to refrigerator or to a candy bar so that I can feel better here. Having said, okay, where do you feel the intolerable experience of emptiness in your body? There's a way to motivate people to educate people. It does seem top down because we are educating people, but they are going down there into the body and finding it. If they were left to their own devices, I see it a lot. What can happen in some modalities where tracking sensations has become popular, mindfulness-based stress reduction is a modality that we all need to be grateful for as somatic psychologists because it brought the body into the consulting room. Prior to that, it was not there. And when the body is regulated, all experiences that generated by the body become regulated. We have tons and tons of research. So it's no way to badmouth that. But sometimes what happens is that people, they start to track sensations. That's what they track because it regulates the body. It regulates the brain. And therefore, it's easier to go away from it than to experience that unbearable emptiness that drives me to the refrigerator. Yeah. What I love about what you just said is, honestly, this is a conversation I try to have with people, but I find a lot of resistance to it, particularly patients who have complex trauma. The idea of 
literally going into a body part is not something you want them to do, specifically not right away. But there is a way in which awareness can rest at the edge because awareness includes any phenomena that happens to arise, whether it's internal, external, bodily, it doesn't matter. Awareness is the field in which all phenomena arises. So it isn't necessary like in the practice of a body scan, which people feel is the only way to experience the body. It isn't necessary to drive yourself into the core of that thing. In the beginning, maybe expanding the emotion right away is too much, but you can expand your tolerance for even its presence. And also, I love the example you gave with emptiness. When people tell me they feel empty, my experience is that when we explore that feeling, like really explore it, it turns out they're having actually other emotions that they're afraid to name because they have such big meaning for them, like loneliness. I feel lonely. Well, you could say empty and it doesn't arouse you and charge you the way if you said, I'm lonely. And that is one thing about ISP that I find really fascinating is that ISP appears to help people become intimate with arousal in a way where they don't have to shut it down. I think you and I can both agree somatic experiencing has a little problem with everybody being afraid of arousal. Uh, you know, I teach somatic experiencing, but there is a tendency, one which I constantly correct and they get it. They tend to track sensations and regulate the body at times when they run into difficult emotions. It's not their problem. It is the, what we teach them. What we're teaching them is that when emotions arise, track sensations either side by side at the same time. It's a bit confusing for the brain to do that. It's a complex task. I think that it compromises it. But in a, regardless, it's a method that is taught in so many countries and we cannot staff enough trainings. I use SE all the time. But I was trained quite a while ago. Things yeah. are a little different and there are certain tendencies, I think. Every modality has diff uh, limitation. I'm sure that ISP does too, and I address it in the book. I tell people trained in SE that when they run into complex trauma, they're working with intense emotions, childhood emotions that are by the very definition, states of high dysregulation and stress. When you run into emotion, use the practice of embodying emotions and then go back to your SE practice. Everything will flow better because the body will be more open for cognition, emotion, behavior, et cetera. Yeah. You know, so it's a complementary modality, even for body oriented psychotherapists, you know, like Reichen therapists who unblock blockages in the body and to arrive at emotions or breath therapists who use breath to challenge the physiological differences to come up with emotions. I say, pause. And instead of just expressing it strongly, do it a few times, but then next time, see if you can create a capacity for the emotion. Another thought that struck me before I forget it, I was working with somebody who was diagnosed borderline and everybody gets easily diagnosed as borderline if the therapist can't handle the client, right? And you and I know that on a given day, in a given relationship, we can become equally borderline. What she could do is only experience that it felt bad that she was betrayed, nothing else only for a few seconds. That was enough. So we, we kept doing that and something emerged from all the dots we were doing. Then she could feel sadness. Then she could feel grief. And then she could also reflect, have a metacognition that this is how I've destroyed most of my relationship. She became less distressful in, in the subsequent days of the training. When we develop a capacity for the most basic dimension of emotion, 
uh, that feels good, it feels bad, then the differentiation takes place. From the emptiness comes, you know, loneliness. And from the loneliness comes the image of being alone in the crib. Those things become more possible. Yes. Let's double back to the core technique, because it is so fascinating. This idea of allowing emotion to inhabit more of the body. I'm curious if you want to talk about the mechanics of that process. In the book, what I've done, I've given a quick introduction of the approach with examples in the first section and what benefits are there and how it can be useful in working with trauma or garden variety adverse experiences. In the second section, I established the science of it. An emotion can be experienced throughout the body. In fact, the entirety of the physiology of the brain and the body is involved in emotion, not just some parts of the brain or the body. And given that expanding the emotion, how does it create greater affect tolerance? The science of it. Simple example I give is emotion is an impact a situation has on your well-being, which is the state of the brain and body physiology. And is it easier to lift a 50 kilogram bag with one arm or both arms? Is it easier to process the impact of a situation on my organism just in my heart? This can lead to a heart attack or my brain. It can lead to headache or to use the entirety of the body. It turns out the entirety of the body. I was giving, trying to give an example to my 14-year-old grandnephew who has OCD these days. It's a big concern. Interview I did yesterday, I demonstrated the practice of embodying emotions on myself using that particular scenario. It caused me so much stress. I ended up in the same place I ended up not being attended to as a child when I was in difficulty. So I'm projecting the inner child on my nephew. And I'm in a freer place with it when I interact with the family in relation to that. The third section of it is all about the four steps of emotional embodiment. And I've written it in such a way that a discerning a person who's not a therapist can actually use it. So I say, read section one, read section three, and then if you want the science of it, go back to the core section right in the middle. The four steps are the situation. I need to elaborate on the situation, the specifics of the situation in order to access the emotion. So you might find me asking you, what aspect of the situation was particularly difficult for you? What aspect of the dream was emotionally charged, most impactful? Something like that. So it's not enough to have a client say, I'm having a difficult relationship. Can you work with me? Yeah. What difficulty? Can you give me an example of the difficulty? There are some people who come in with feeling, in which case we are already in the second step, emotion. So situation, emotion. We have to look at the innate defense that you talked about, that nobody wants to feel unpleasant emotions. They need to understand why we need to go into it to expand it. Education is necessary. And by the way, let me take on a detour. All processes are top down. There's no such thing called bottom up. All, everything is mediated through the brain. Even the tiniest sensation we say it's bottom up, it's not because it's processed in the brain. It's an image in the brain. It is not. And Damasio makes it clear. Even he says, even the tiniest sensation like a heartbeat is actually seventh order abstraction of what is happening in the body. So I know people make a distinction between when I go to into the body, it's bottom up. When I start with the cognition, etc., it's top down. That is true if you define it that way, but all the processes are top down. Before we set it aside, let's be really clear. 90% of our functioning is autonomic and under the hood and not apparent to the 10% that is conscious awareness. When I say bottom up, what I'm talking about is the phenomenal condition of the structures of the body 
that aren't just functioning on their own with zombie subsystems, but also actually have certain kinds of structural problems that have been created by some of the experiences and defense structures that you mentioned earlier. And those function independent of our conscious awareness. Got it. If you say conscious awareness, that's fine. But everything is initiated in the brain. If you define it that way, then it's all top down. Even the autonomic processes are mediated by the brain. So ultimately, there's processing that occurs in the structures of the brain. Absolutely. But I think you and I would both agree with Mark Soames that, for instance, there's just one very tiny, small area in the brainstem called the reticulum. Get that gets damaged, there's no more consciousness at all in a right. human system. And right. so that is at such a base level of the connection. It's like, I kind of call the brainstem the connectome in a way, because it's connecting everything, all the information from bodily experience into all those cognitive right. structures that are basically above the brainstem. So that was my only clarification. When I say top down and bottom up, this is all I'm referring to. For example, the emotion is a construction of the brain, but it's based on body information. Mm -hmm. It's an abstraction. Yeah, Lisa Feldman Barrett has written eloquently yeah. about it in a book, How yeah. the Brain Makes Emotions. Yeah. And But we also know that if the body is not involved in emotion, very little emotional processing takes place in the brain. So going back to the steps, we also have social prohibitions on emotions on the basis of which psychological differences form. The most important factor in a person's ability to have an emotion and tolerate an emotion is the support of the people outside. And that sometimes people forget when they're doing somatic psychology that somehow when you go into the body, you breath, etc. Empathic support is the most essential ingredient that brings the person close to emotion. There's so many ways to provide support, including interpersonal resonance. The more we can feel what the other person is feeling, we can feel that because now the science tells us we can communicate with them through the inter in electromagnetic energies and quantum fields. Uh, and through that, we can actually come to know what the other person is experiencing. And that's what gives a mother who raises a secure child the ability to attune given the support outside, given the right attitudes inside and the adequate empathy, et cetera, education, then the client will allow their body and brain to generate the emotion. The third step, which is unique to the practice of embodying emotions, not only, I mean, there are body psychotherapy systems all uh, work on it to a certain extent, even in somatic experiencing, it's about bringing the person out of the freeze so that they can feel what? The emotions in the freeze. Here, we're systematically going after it by working on the physiological defenses. In the book, I only write about the physiological defenses. I don't write about the energetic defenses that I teach people in the class because energy is a, not a very popular topic. It could undermine the scientific basis of the practice that I'm bringing to the field. And so that's about expanding it to the places of the body. And how much you do that, what tools you use, all those, are, you know, it could be intention, it could be movement, it could be self-touch. I believe in self-touch a lot because the field is not there that many therapists can actually touch their clients. So, so all kinds of ways to expand and how much to expand, how much emotion to bring up, how long to stay in it. All these are empirical issues in relation to the capacity of the individual client we're working. I've shown in the first part that even when you do 
small pieces of emotional embodiment. You know, sadness is here, and then you bring it to the throat, maybe to the face. That might be sufficient to shift a major symptom like asthma. You know, I've given an example of a woman with an asthma in a session that nothing seemed to happen. But then I realized later that, you know, it's not how much emotion people have, it's where they're working at, at their edge, at their capacity. And the fourth step, which is optional, is called integration. When we take an impact, let's say the fear of dying, trying to squeeze it there into that place and maybe push it out the back door and it's not happening, we suffer with anxiety. When I have people expand that emotion into the rest of the body by un undoing the blocks and the joints or whatever, then what happens is the body is actually doing better. The ability to tolerate it comes from that. The body is not in as much difficulty as it is experiencing a fear like fear of dying. So my grandnephew said, yeah, if you keep a grain that is wet in one place, that's going to be very difficult for it to dry. If we spread it out, it dries faster. It's open more to the sun. And he said, yeah, he got it. So he's going to try to work with this fear, with his grandmother, my sister, who actually went to Sri Lanka with me and, 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 and saw me work with victims of war, violence, and displacement and loss over a three-year period. In fact, she got even certified in the method. She's not a therapist. The child's parents are clueless. She's helping him. He used to not sleep. At least he sleeps on the days that he does that. This optional step, instead of noticing like an SC sensations, arbitrary, you notice you have the feeling, but at the same time, you're noticing you're breathing better. At the same time, you're noticing that it's more spread out. At the same time, you're noticing that there's more energy in the legs than before. You know, I'm working on videos to demonstrate this. So I have a great deal of difficulty when there's nobody there and they say, you know, why don't you tape something? Let me talk about the anxiety of sitting here in front of you, trying to tape into a camera with nobody present. And I did that. That is the practice that's video that's going to be on my website. And you can see me struggle through my own experience and see how much more fluent and confident as I become, because I refuse to turn it off. Once I got going, it was, it was quite easy. Here's a question. Apparently, third-person research as well as first-person research has shown that emotions don't last more than between three to five seconds. I mean, they literally come and go very fast. The idea of expanding and spreading emotional experience to more parts of the body would go against the science that emotions come and go that quickly. Now, I will admit you might have the same emotion come up over and over and over again. So even though we don't experience in the timeline that they're coming and going, it just feels like it's there. My experience and the experience of my patients is that everything's constantly shifting. And an emotion is very complex and it's made of all kinds of things. And there's all kinds of phenomena, uh, whether it's body sensation or thoughts or feeling itself, image, it's all kinds of things that show up in the experience that can be expanded. So I'm wondering how you expand the totality of what may be occurring that is quote unquote, the emotion, which isn't that small, narrow thing that they think emotion is. Yeah, I, you know, I have to go into that literature that, that has come up with the finding that emotional experience lasts three seconds. 
you know, it goes against everything that I've experienced personally and with my clients. As a subjective experience, I can be with the fear of dying for a long period of time or grief. So it's the arising of an actual emotion. Actually, I first saw this in Damasio's book, The Self Comes to Mind. For instance, grief, okay? We can say grief is an emotion. Grief is a complex experience that includes a whole range of things. All aspects of cognition, emotion, and behavior cannot be separated either in the experience or in the physiology of the brain or the body. So what you say, it's a complex experience. There is hard science to say it is indeed complex. And the experience of wanting something and reaching out, wanting something, there is the behavioral impulse of reaching out. There is the meaning that this object is desirable. There is the feeling that I want it. So you cannot separate it even in experience. We also have a way of focusing on one aspect or the other at the phenomenological level. You know, you cannot really separate out cognitive components from emotional components to behavioral components. It's a dynamic systems view that is becoming more and dominant as there's more evidence than the functional specialization perspective of the brain. I think you and I are agreeing. But for me, emotion is very broadly defined. You know, emotion, if you define it like Lisa Feldman Barrett defines it, the impact a situation has on you. If an impact depresses you, that lasts a long time, that also qualifies as an emotion. You can actually work with depression as how bad does it feel, the underlying quality of it. Then you start to like out of emptiness comes loneliness, out of depression and how bad it feels comes sadness or anger or whatever it is. Yeah, I think this is why I love having this conversation with you because emotion has been left out for so long in the field. There's so many ways to understand what emotion actually is. For instance, I think I would disagree with you that depression is actually an emotion. For me, depression is keeping down whatever is there that has libido in it, that has energy in it, but it's so unpleasant. It's unpleasant for the narrative. You can also access that, interpret that emotion and work to embody the difficulty of it, not the depression of it, the difficulty of it, and then through that, uh, you know, develop a capacity for the underlying emotions that are difficult. If I develop capacity to feel bad, I have a capacity to process all these emotions that are in the difficult domain, because that's what I'm afraid of. So we're not in disagreement. I'm just expanding it further. Would it be easier if you and I were using the word feelings or feeling rather than the word emotion? Because of valence. I'm making it easy for everybody. Feelings, affects, emotions, I'm defining them all as emotions. I know Damasio defines okay. feelings as conscious emotions and emotions as unconscious feelings. Moods, temperaments, everything you can bring under the umbrella of emotion. Some moods are transient as well as temperaments are more permanent. I'm saying put that all under emotions because something is having an effect on you to push you into this term long-term or short-term and you suffer from it. So let's start with the suffering that it causes, develop a capacity and then unearth other things that come up. So then maybe the expansion piece is an expansion of the capacity to presence whatever might be arising 
that yes. feels intolerable or that one thinks is intolerable but may not actually be intolerable. Expansion, I simply mean mechanically expanding the emotional experience in the body. That okay. requires working with the physiological defenses if there are any. For example, sometimes I say to somebody who's anxious, can you sense, see whether you can expand the anxiety into the body and they do it, which means that the body is not locked up in physiological defenses that's beyond the scope of awareness, reach of awareness. Whereas some people I say, okay, put your hand there on the chest, put the hand on the belly, connect the two places through the second law of energy so that the energy will connect between the two places and now see whether you can experience anxiety in the body as well. The ability to tolerate it comes automatically. That's the, the I've spent a whole chapter on explaining how that comes about that when you expand the emotional experience, it becomes more tolerable in both places. You know, I have this anxiety that's intolerable. I try to expand it locally. And then by putting my hand there, by breathing into it, it makes a little better. But when I put my hand on my belly and make that area expanded physically so that emotion can also go there, I'm with more anxiety than before. You know what? I'm not suffering as much in the chest or the belly. The affect tolerance comes naturally, and that's because the impact is spread out. On the other hand, the blood flow, the nervous system flow, interstitial flow, intra intercellular fluid flow, the lymphatic flow, the electromagnetic flow, the quantum flows that are blocked when I kind of constrict my diaphragm to prevent it from going down are now open. So the body is functioning on a higher level. On the one hand, I'm spreading the impact. On the other hand, I'm actually what? Reducing the impact. Therefore, it's easier for me to be with it. Well, it makes huge sense because I do a lot of this. And also yeah. because I think what you're describing is something I appreciate, like Freud, who very much wanted psychology to be part of medicine. Yeah. So I appreciate your desire to keep this out of a realm that hasn't been scientifically proven yet. However, I do want to say I love so much your description of what you're doing because for me, when you work with the gross nervous system, you're working with the subtle body nervous system as well. And I can hear how, even though you're not declaring it directly to the people you work with, that they are actually working with Prana Bindu Nadi. They actually are working with some of the channels and the prana and the hubs yeah, to allow yeah. that movement to begin to open even there, because I would say all the emotional dysregulation is actually stuckness yeah. there. And you know, the way I explain it is that when my body's more open, it means it's also open to the collective field that it's an integral part of. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore the archetypal energies and all those things can have a fluid exchange with the individual energy systems, really. So why don't you say a little bit about at what point that starts to occur consciously for people that they begin to have that experience of, oh, this isn't just me. Some, I'm part of something. That connection comes. If I'm like a close down, like a prune, I feel very isolated. When I'm more open, you know, I intuitively, it's like a I feel more connected to the world. Other human beings, I can resonate with them. You know, this is what happens in avoidance. The body shuts down even the electromagnetic communication between the mother and the child is lost. And the child, of course, feels terribly alone. So it's very much in the realm of science because everything is physical. There's nothing non-physical because 
if you say there's something physical and something non-physical, the non-physical can affect the physical. It's a contradiction philosophically. So we tend to dismiss them all as woo-woo. There's not no woo-woo in the world. It's all physical. The fact that we cannot measure it doesn't make it unreal or woo-woo or magic. It's not. You know, all these things about communication, telekinesis, or telepathy can now be explained through quantum physics and quantum entanglement. The sense of self is a product of experience. All these billion cells in the body generate this hum of a sense of self. There is no sense of self, really. It's arbitrary, right? And he doesn't know what gives it awareness that then becomes the ego. Vedanta says the same thing. The sense of self, Ramana Maharishi calls it the I thought. It should be the I sense. And that's the biggest fiction in human existence, right? In mindfulness, we separate experience from the experience. Awareness from the experience with the experience. There are two types of mindfulness people do. You know, I watch myself walk and talk. You know, that's the awareness is separating the experience with the experience, or it can be I'm observing my body having a certain sensation, right? Experience, experience. It turns out when the body has more capacity for the experience, it's easier. It makes sense. When I'm riding a horse, if the horse is all over the place, the rider cannot quite pay attention to how the ride feels right? When it becomes more stable. In the experiences, separating the pure awareness from the sense of self that needs to be destroyed, the part of the ego that needs to be destroyed in spiritual practice is easier when there's a greater capacity to tolerate opposites in the body. It's most effectively practiced, not when I'm sitting alone in silence, but right in the middle of the storm of the experience. That's where it's hard. And the more I do that, this easier it will be for me to do it in the sitting in the silence practice and vice versa. That's why Vedanta says, Jungian psychology says, in order to have a good self-ego access, you need to develop a capacity for opposites, for individual growth. In Vedanta, in order to become enlightened, to know that you're the pure awareness, unchanging pure awareness, the body, infinite awareness in which the whole universe is operating, the basic qualification is to develop capacity for opposites. And as I said at the beginning of the interview, that is one of the primary motivations for me to arrive at this method and make it available for people. And I think ultimately, even for Western psychology, particularly the branch is working so hard on getting people to regulate their emotions, quote unquote, yeah. that even for them, they would say, black and white doesn't exist. Everything is gray. Everything yeah. is spectrum from the best of the best to the worst of the worst. And worst. mental health looks like person being able to rest in the recognition mm -hmm. that there is no black or white and have that tolerance, which of course is tolerance for complexity. Yeah, complexity and both sides, both sides. If I can tolerate the ups and downs in my life, it's easier to tolerate the ups and downs that are going on in the world. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But there's also this attitude like thermostat. We want to make the human being remain in this relative state of well-being. That's not possible. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of human beings, unfortunately. I agree. And actually, I frankly think that that's cultural. It's a way to control. So for instance, here in Silicon Valley, mindfulness became such a phenomena 
so many of the companies everybody knows. And yet what they were doing was they basically were offering mindfulness as a way to keep their employees working in a fashion that was unworkable and be mm -hmm. able to tolerate that more. Right, and right. this is a very bad use. I know. I think. And I think, frankly, a lot of what happens in standard psychological methodologies uh, is really not asking big questions, not asking deeper questions, making sure that people stay within a very narrow window of yeah. affect and thought right, to right. keep them in line. I think it's convenient to use mental health in this way. Ultimately, anything can be used in a good way or a bad way, including sure. the practice of embodying emotion. And what would be a bad way? To help somebody who's in a domestic violence situation to get used to the fear and the pain of it without probing. Sometimes when they embody it, the theory says the cognition and behavior will improve. They will realize that this is not a situation to be in, that they're in this situation because it's a reenactment. If the therapist also doesn't probe these new frontiers that are opening up in cognition and behavior, just you know, justify the situation to stay in the situation, it would be a wrong use of the practice of embodying emotion. The good thing about emotion is that you, know, you cannot just develop a capacity to develop emotions and still remain in the same situation for too long. You will feel the impact even more. And the brain will ask why. And then somebody will suggest it or you will come to the same suggestion yourself. This is not a situation to be in. And this is repetition. And there is something you can do about it. And I think partly that would be really true for the people we work with who had chronic childhood adverse environments where they're in chronic freeze all the time because right. they, you know, they can't fight, they can't run, they really can't do that. So their safety is to shut it all down. And I think that's especially true for them. Yeah. Well, I actually was going to say that I'm hoping the clinicians who are listening to this, who don't already work in some somatic fashion with patients, that they have a much better sense that ISP is actually a very complementary methodology that can be plugged in quite quickly. And, you know, okay. SE requires a lot of training. Yeah. I think ISP has this beautiful aspect where if you're already working in a certain way yeah. just with talk that this can be much more accessible that's my hope and by just reading the book and uh, applying it to yourself and uh, applying it to clients who have emotions to begin with resourced clients and gaining from that experience you can go a long way the book is doing well thank god They've ordered a second printing. It, the first printing sold out in three weeks. So I'm so happy about it because I just want it to be out there to help people. And if you want to learn more, you can go to my website and look at the different training opportunities there, including we also not only work with gross body defenses, as we call in the East, but also the subtle body defenses. When people want to contact you and take advantage of your resources on the site. What is the URL for the site? www.integralsomaticpsychology.com. Is there anything else before we come to an end? Just that, please make good use of it.
and you can use it at different levels with sophistication, depending on the training you get in it. But the book itself will help you a long way, but apply it to yourself and see, verify for yourself, it makes a difference and then apply it to your clients. But you can also apply it to clients. Sometimes we learn from our clients that it works. Do you feel that it is important for clinicians who want to offer this to come and actually train with you? Yeah, I offer supervisions online or I do workshops. I have video courses. I have demonstrations that some of them are free. Not only my working with clients, but also my demonstrating how to work with different parts of the body to expand and regulate different parts of the body emotionally. So there are all kinds of ways. Ultimately, if you want to grow deeper and deeper into the method, then you can, can take the short ISP professional training that is offered in three modules of four days each. And in the coming year, it's being offered in, the, in North America uh, yeah, online. So it's online. So. Oh, great. Well, Raja, this has just been such an honor for me. And I have so enjoyed being able to have this conversation with you about really important work that I'm hoping a lot of clinicians will get interested in and start to really explore and even use. Thank, thank you. I, I just thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with you. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.